In this episode, we're going to be talking about relative and absolute humidity, different ways of humidifying air, and how humidity is measured. Let's start with some concepts and definitions. Humidity is the amount of water vapor in the air. There are two main types of humidity that are quoted, absolute and relative. Absolute humidity, also known as volumetric humidity, is the actual mass of water contained in a volume of air. It is generally quoted in milligrams per liter. This value is the same regardless of the temperature of the air. When air is carrying the maximum amount of water vapor that it is able to, it is said to be saturated. The partial pressure of water in this circumstance is equal to the SVP of water at that temperature. As the SVP of water increases with temperature, so does the amount of water air is able to hold. So hot air can hold much more water than cold air. Relative humidity is the amount of water that can be carried by the air compared to the maximum amount of water that can be carried by air of that temperature. It is expressed as a percentage. It can be calculated by dividing the partial pressure of water vapor in a gas mixture by the SVP of water at that temperature. It can also be calculated by dividing the absolute humidity by the maximum mass of water that can be carried per liter of air at that temperature. For example, air at 37 degrees, that's body temperature, is able to carry 44 milligrams of water per liter when fully saturated. This is actually the case in our trachea's and lower airways. So if a sample of air at this temperature has an absolute humidity of 22 milligrams per liter, it is carrying half of what it is able to, and so has a relative humidity of 50%. However, air at 23 degrees is able to carry about 22 milligrams per liter. So if a sample at this temperature also had an absolute humidity of 22 milligrams per liter, its relative humidity would actually be 100% and it would be fully saturated. The dew point is the temperature at which water starts to condense out of its vapor phase from the air, just like dew forming on grass on a cold morning. This happens because as the air cools, it is able to carry less and less water. Eventually, the amount of water that it contains exceeds its new maximum for its colder temperature. Air is unable to have a relative humidity of over 100%, so the excess water condenses out into the liquid phase. Therefore, at the dew point, the relative humidity of air is 100% as any extra water has condensed out. This is also why you find condensation on the side of an ice-cold drink. The cold glass cools the air around it, lowering the amount of water that air can carry. This causes it to give up excess water vapour in the form of water droplets on the side of your glass. Great, so now that we've got the basics out of the way, let's go over how humidity is measured. Confusingly, the process of measuring humidity is not called hygrometry, it's called psychrometry. But a device that measures humidity is called a hygrometer. The most common hygrometers found in clinical practice are the wet and dry bulb hygrometer, the hair tension hygrometers, and dew point hygrometers. The wet and dry bulb hygrometer is made out of two glass thermometers. One is dry and measures the ambient temperature of the air, and the other is surrounded by a water-soaked material wick. There's a constant airflow around the whole apparatus. Water from the wick will evaporate at a rate that is dependent on the temperature and relative humidity of the air. This evaporation cools the wet bulb thermometer due to the latent heat of vaporization. 
The difference in temperature between the two thermometers can be used to determine humidity by looking it up in tables. Hair tension hygrometers rely on the fact that hair is made up of strands of molecules that are held together by both disulfide bridges and hydrogen bonds. Water can insert itself between the hydrogen bonds, causing them to relax. This means that wet hair tends to lengthen. A hair tension hygrometer is made up of a pointer that is connected to a rigid surface by strands of hair. This is usually horse hair. As humidity increases, the hair absorbs more water from the atmosphere and gets longer. This moves the pointer and the humidity can be read off a scale. This type of hygrometer is actually still commonly used in operating theatres today. Dew point hygrometers work on the principle of the dew point that I explained earlier. A famous example of this is the Regnaults hygrometer. This consists of a silver-lined test tube containing ether. Air is bubbled through the ether to cause it to cool through the latent heat of vaporization. As the tube cools, it eventually reaches the dew point and water condenses onto it. The temperature at which this happens is recorded. Both the absolute and relative humidities of the air can be determined by looking them up from reference tables. Modern dewpoint hygrometers use a chilled mirror and electronic thermometers to determine the humidity by the same principle. Humidity is important to human physiology for many reasons. It affects the amount of cooling that can happen due to the evaporation of sweat, but most importantly for anesthesia, it is vitally important in respiratory physiology. Under normal circumstances, inhaled air is warmed to body temperature and completely saturated by the upper airways. By the time it reaches the carina, it is at approximately 37 degrees Celsius and contains 44 milligrams per litre of water vapour. This gives it a water vapour pressure of around 6.3 kilopascals. This humidity is important for keeping secretions moist, and it is vital for keeping the epithelial lining of the airways healthy. Dry air in the lower airways causes moisture to be lost from the epithelial cells. This damages them and prevents their cilia from working. Secretions can also become extremely thick and tenacious, making them harder to cough up. This combination leads to an increase in respiratory complications, such as collapse and infection. There's also an associated heat loss with having to humidify inhaled air, which can contribute to perioperative hypothermia if left uncorrected. These problems can be particularly important during anesthesia, as the medical gases that we use are dry, and the use of airway devices, such as endotracheal tubes or even LMAs, bypasses the upper airways and their humidifying properties. That's why we've developed a variety of methods of increasing the humidity of inspired gases in anaesthetic practice. These can be generally categorized as passive and active. Passive mechanisms are the heat moisture exchangers, or HMEs. You'll have seen these every day in theater attached to your endotracheal tube or LMA. There might also be one on the expiratory limb of your circle system in theater. HMEs are made up of a small sealed container containing a hygroscopic material that attracts water. When warm, moist air from the patient is expired over the HME, the device absorbs the water vapor, heating up the element in the process by the latent heat of condensation. When cool, dry, inspired air passes back the other way, this moisture is given up to this air and brought back to the patient. HMEs can humidify inspired air up to 80%, and can be used for around 24 hours without causing significant resistance to airflow. HMEs have many advantages, in that they are passive, cheap to make, and can be made small and lightweight. 
They also generally incorporate a 0.2 micron filter that prevents the passage of most bacteria and viruses. Their disadvantages are the fact that they aren't 100% efficient and still cause an increase to the breathing circuit's dead space. A water bath humidifier consists of a chamber half filled with water. Passive versions just bubble inspired air through this to humidify it before passing it on to the patient. But most versions that you've probably encountered in clinical practice are active and warm up the water to increase the absolute humidity of the inspired air. These active versions can be used to heat the patient as well, but must be used carefully to prevent the scalding of airways by the delivery of excessively hot gases. Modern active water baths, such as those found in the OptiFlow high-flow nasal oxygen system, also incorporate mechanisms to prevent the delivery of overheated gases to the patient. They have temperature sensors in the humidifying chamber and also at the patient end to ensure that inspired gases aren't too hot. Water baths have many advantages and can be 100% efficient, but are bulky and expensive. They can also be a reservoir for infection. Another issue is that if the tubing between the humidifier and the patient gets too cold, water can condense, or rain out, into the tubing. This water can pool and inadvertently be tipped into the patient when repositioning the tube, causing aspiration. Some modern systems have heated tubing to prevent this. The final category of humidifier is the nebulizer. Nebulizers add moisture to air by producing an aerosol. An aerosol consists of tiny particles of liquid suspended in the air. This is not actually water vapour, so nebulizers are technically not true humidifiers, but they can be used to deliver moisture to the airways. Nebulizers are also used to deliver medicines to the airways. They can generally be categorised as atomizers or ultrasonic nebulizers. Atomizers are jet nebulizers and use a stream of air to deliver droplets at a high speed to a sharp point. When the droplets hit this sharp point, they shatter into much smaller droplets. These tiny droplets are then inhaled by the patient. An example of this type of nebulizer is a mask nebulizer that you may have seen on the wards. Ultrasonic nebulizers use an ultrasonic speaker attached to a chamber of liquid that causes it to vibrate at extremely high frequencies around 1.5 MHz. This vibration shakes the liquid so violently that particles at the surface break off as tiny droplets. The higher the frequency, the smaller the droplets, and so the further down the respiratory tree they are transmitted. Ultrasonic nebulizers are actually able to produce such small particles that they could deposit in the alveoli, and there have been concerns that you could inadvertently flood a patient's lungs if they are left unattended. Well, I think that's enough for this episode. Today you've learned about the differences between absolute and relative humidity, how humidity is measured, the importance of humidity in clinical practice, and finally, how we increase the humidity of inspired medical gases. Thanks so much for listening. If you've liked this episode, please feel free to subscribe through your podcast player of choice. You can also find all of these episodes online at planaprimary.co.uk. Remember, this entire series is going to be published absolutely free, so please share this with anyone who you think might find it useful. If you've got any questions, feedback, or just want to request a topic, feel free to email me at questions at planaprimary.co.uk, or you can leave a comment by this episode online.